0: This is the second Sunday of our uh, Inspiration Sundays uh, leading up to Commitment Sunday for Moving by Faith campaign. So what I'm talking about today, and you'll hear about each of these Sundays, is something to do with stewardship. Thank you for the testimonies that were given. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that there is a story that each of us can tell, and it is about your faithfulness. Lord, you just take imperfect people where we are and your spirit enters into us through faith in your son Jesus and that's when things begin to really happen. And Lord, what a ride. I just thank you for hearing about the Butlers and the Wilsons ride and everyone in this room has a story like that. So Father, as we come and we consider this topic of honoring you with our wealth, Lord, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to work in each of us and open up our hearts to your will. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. I have always been uncomfortable preaching on the topic of giving. Pastor Bill mentioned this last week. I think it's true of every pastor. Because there's a perception. And and here's how it goes. Many years ago, a child who didn't understand how church finances worked asked me one day, I was a pastor then, asked me one day if I got to keep everything that was put into the collection basket that morning. I think there's some adults who still think that. And, but if somebody really thought that was the case, well, then any message from the pulpit on the topic of giving would be about as self-serving as it gets. And the other reason I think I'm uncomfortable talking about money is that I'm, I'm a fairly private person. And especially when it comes to my finances, I just think it's not your business. I don't think it's anybody's business but my business. Well, apparently Jesus doesn't see the topic of money that way. Any examination of the Gospels reveals that Christ talked about money and stewardship, a staggering 15% of all the words that he spoke. Somebody else figured that out. But that's more than he talked about heaven and hell. That's more than he talked about salvation. So this morning... I'm going to get out of my comfort zone, way out of my comfort zone. And you're going to be out of your comfort zone as well. Let me just give you a heads up here. Because we're going to consider what God's Word has to say on the topic of giving. But first of all, let's start with probably one of the most curious parables in all of Scripture. It's in Luke chapter 16. It'll be on the overhead here. I'm going to read the first nine verses of Luke 16. Jesus told his disciples... There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. He's getting fired. The manager says to himself, What shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he calls in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Here's the strange part. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And here's Jesus' comment. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Curious, right? There are different interpretations of this passage that attempt to explain the owner's apparent approval of what seems to be a dishonest act on the part of the steward that he's firing. Here's a few possibilities I came across in Randy's Alcorn discussion uh, of this parable. First possibility, the steward reduced long outstanding debts so that at least his master received some payment instead of nothing at all, maybe. Second possibility, because stewards were sometimes paid from the interest charged on loans, what the steward deducted from the debts might have been what was due him, which he needed to obtain now if he was ever going to get it at all. And lastly, possible interpretation. The steward had initially grossly overcharged the debtors in the first place, planning to pocket the excess. Now he lets them pay for their goods at their true uninflated price so that they'll welcome him into his home when he gets fired. I don't know if all this... Whatever the correct interpretation is, and parables normally just have one central point that shouldn't be obscured by uncertainties about secondary issues. Whatever the central point is, the master in the parable praises the steward for shrewdness. Shrewdness in using, with his own future well-being in mind, using his master's money to invest in relationships with people when he had the opportunity to do so. And that's what he praises the, the steward for. Now, Jesus isn't advocating or condoning dishonesty in the way we handle money, but clearly he intends that we draw a parallel between the shrewd manager's position and our position. As stewards of all that God has given us, we also have just a window of opportunity, and it's this short earthly life, a window of opportunity to emulate the steward's wisdom by handling our master's resources with our eternal future in mind one day money will be useless doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have one day it will be useless but while it's still useful christians with foresight will use it for eternal good on the front of your bulletin you might have read the words from proverbs 3:9 we'll go on the overhead here proverbs 3:9 says this honor the lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. This morning we are going to consider guidelines for honoring the Lord with our wealth. And the first guideline for honoring the Lord with our wealth is this, give regularly and purposefully. Give regularly and purposefully. Let's talk about the Old Testament for a minute. There was a standard, very clear standard in the Old Testament for regular and purposeful giving. It's called the tithe. The word tithe simply means 10th or 10%. Leviticus 27.30 says this, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. The tithe is holy to the Lord. Today, the term tithing is often uh, falsely used of all giving. Someone talks about, well, I'm going to tithe $50 to the church when they actually make $2,000 a month. Well, 10% of 2,000 is 200, it's not 50. We can donate 2%, we can donate 4%, but you cannot tie that unless it's 10%. That's what the word means, 10%. The Israelites were warned that to present to their creator anything less than the full 10% was to rob God. Why? Because the first 10% belonged to God and not to them. Look at these words from Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10. They'll be on the screen here. This is God speaking. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, God replies, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you will not have room for it. But actually, as you read through the Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus, there wasn't just a single tithe commanded of the Israelite people. If you take into account support for the priests and Levites, support for the sacred festivals, support for widows, orphans, and poor, some scholars estimate that the yearly requirement of giving that's laid out in the Mosaic Law for an Old Testament believer, was as much as 23% of personal annual income. Part of that was that three times a year the children of Israel were to bring an offering of first fruits before the Lord. First fruits. The term first fruits included the first production of the vineyard, the first production of the grain crop, the first production of wine, of olive oil, of sheared wool, of whatever it was. The first part of it, that's first fruits. The giving of first fruits made an important statement. This is on the part of the Israelite people. This is a statement that it makes. We give our first and our best to you, God, because we recognize that everything comes from you. All good things come from you. In so doing, we acknowledge that you own everything and you're the provider of the harvest. And there's another message that first fruits also communicates, and it's this We trust you, God to not only provide this first fruit, this first part of the harvest, but we trust you to provide the rest of the harvest so that we will have what we need to live for this next year. Think about it. You're, you're a, a farmer in, uh, in Jesus' day in the first century, and you farm wheat. The very first part of your crop, you give it to the work of the Lord. That's not for you. That's, that's the gods. And you're trusting that there's going to be more. That the crop's gonna keep coming ripe and you're gonna have enough to put away for the next year. Well, that's the brief look at tithing and free will offering in the Old Testament. So, before considering whether Christians should tithe today, because that's the question, let's look at our current giving habits. Here's some statistics Barner Research regularly attempts to track giving trends in today's church, so get ready for this. These numbers are pretty dismal. Four out of ten churchgoers give nothing. Nothing. One-third of born-again adults, those who say they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, one-third said they tithed. But a comparison of their giving versus their household income revealed that only one out of eight actually tithed. Furthermore, there has been a gradual decline in giving that has continued for decades, decades, in actual disposable income, churchgoers today give less than their grandparents and their great-grandparents did during the Great Depression of the 1930s. The average today among those who give at church, not everybody, but among just those who give, is about two and a half percent. One other interesting statistic. Barner Research reports that the more money a person makes, the less they give. The more money a person makes, the less likely they are to tithe. The more money a person makes, they give a smaller and smaller percentage of their income than does someone who makes less than they do. You would think that as a person's income goes up over their life, that they would, their giving would go up. No, it tends to stay the same. And they give actually less than those who make less than they do. So what about giving for us today, for the New Testament believer? Does the Old Testament standard of tithing apply to us? You wouldn't think this would be a controversial subject, but it actually is. Some argue vehemently no, the New Testament believer does not need the tithe. And their argument goes this way We are not under law, we are under grace. Folks in this camp see tithing as submitting to Old Testament legalism. Well, I detest legalism as much as anybody. And it's true that there is no New Testament command that we tithe. But consider these facts as well. Every New Testament example of giving goes beyond the tithe. Also consider that tithing didn't begin with the Mosaic law. Abraham tithed hundreds of years before Moses was born. And while it's also true that Christ fulfilled the entire Old Testament, he didn't render the Old Testament obsolete or irrelevant. Given all of that, it's my conviction that grace-giving, that is, giving under the lordship of Jesus Christ, giving for the followers of Jesus Christ, that's all of us and everybody that you know that follows Jesus today, that grace-giving begins with the tithe and then moves beyond 10% to 12%, to 15%, to 20%, and literally the sky's the limit. I did a funeral some years back, for a man that I only knew a little bit, but uh, as I often do when I do funerals, I spend some time with the family. And as I spent some time with this man's family, I learned that he practiced something that he called reverse tithing. He gave 90% of his income to the Lord and lived on the remaining 10%. He was audited by the IRS every single year because they couldn't believe that anybody would do that. That's grace giving. The point is, is that we start with the tithe, with 10%, and prayerfully seek the Lord if we should give more. That's what I believe the Scriptures teach for the New Testament believer. Because being under grace giving does not mean that we live by lower standards than the law. Christ systematically addressed such issues as murder, adultery, and the taking of oaths, and he made clear that his standards were much higher than those of the Pharisees. Jesus never lowered the bar. He always raised the bar. But he also empowers us by his grace to live that higher standard than the law demanded. So here's my challenge. If you're not giving 10% off the top, gross of whatever your income is regardless of your income whether you get thousand dollars a month or ten thousand dollars a month if you're not giving ten percent off the top make it your goal to do so this first guideline for honoring the lord with our wealth is to give regularly and purposefully let me just break that down simply regular giving is determined by the timing of of our actual income the way that it comes into us if you get paid once a week Tithe each week. Don't wait for the end of the month. Tithe when you get the paycheck. If it's once a week, tithe that week. If it's every two weeks, tithe every two weeks. If it's once a month, tithe every month. If you get paid on some irregular basis or just by when jobs get done, pay your tithe when that money comes in. Tithe when you're on vacation. Tithe when you miss a Sunday because you're sick or you have visitors from out of town. Be regular. In your tithing. The purposeful part of the first guideline is simply our determination to be faithful in tithing. Whether it's 10%. It has to be 10% to be called tithing. But it could be 12% or 15% or whatever the Lord is directing us to give. That means we tithe not just from our paycheck but when we get a bonus. We tithe when we get money for babysitting or allowance I believe tithing starts as soon as a child, a teenager, anybody begins to receive income for anything. That's when you learn. That's when you begin to tithe. It's so much easier to learn when you're younger. So when we get a bonus, when we get overtime pay, when we get our tax return, when we get a financial gift, we tithe. That's purposeful giving. Regular is the timing of it. Purposeful is that we tithe and simply it's back to that same Old Testament standard. We do not rob God. It's his money, not ours. First guideline, give regularly and purposefully. The second guideline for honoring the Lord with our wealth is to give generously. After telling the parable about the shrewd steward in Luke 16, Jesus goes on to give this application to his followers. It's in Luke 16, starting with verse 10. Same parable. Jesus says this, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, God's property, who who will give you property of your own? And verse 13... No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Wow. Jesus implies that your paycheck, your retirement check, your welfare check, whatever it is that you get, whatever pays the bills in your home, it's a test. We are being tested every time we receive income. It's a test in what Jesus calls a little thing. The way we handle money is a test. Think of it this way. If a child can't be trusted to spend his father's money and return the change, neither can that child be trusted to stay overnight alone at a friend's house. But if that child can be trusted to clean his room and take out the garbage, perhaps that child could be trusted with a dog or a new bike. We're being tested. It's much like a child. Only we're adults, and it's our income. It's our paycheck. And God is testing us. That's what Jesus says in this parable. And this principle invalidates all of our if-onlys. The if-onlys go like this. If only I made more money... I'd tithe. If only I made more money, I'd help the poor. If only I had a million dollars, then I'd give to this church building fund or I'd give more to missions. But on the contrary, in giving us this principle, Jesus is declaring that if we're dishonest or if we're selfish or if we make excuses in the way that we use the few dollars we have now, then we just make excuses if he gives us more. If we are not faithful in what we have right now, this principle says we're not going to be faithful no matter how much we have. It wouldn't matter if we we won the lottery and won $10 million. We're not going to be more faithful then than we are right now because right now is the test. Whatever income we have right now, that's the test. The The issue is not what we would do if we had double or 10 times the income we have now. The issue is this. What are we doing with the hundred thousand, the ten thousand, the one thousand, the one hundred, or the ten dollars that we actually have today. That's the test. If we're not being faithful with what God has entrusted to us right now, why should He entrust us anymore? Lynn and I two years ago went to uh, Malawi, Africa, and we did some mission work there and uh, when you go to the church services, none of which ever were less than three hours long, um, uh, they they 're joyful and but they have a, when they, when they come to the time of the giving it 's very different than what we do in America. They set down three large bowls right here in the front on the floor, like think of a big salad bowl, and every row comes up every person in the church, row by row by row, start with the first one they all come up and they drop. The first bowl is tithe, the second bowl is offering, and the third bowl is special projects, which is for them was they're always building a church. Their churches were all mud floors and no electricity and things. But so each row, row by row by row, till everyone in the entire church comes up and drops something in one of those three bowls, and they go back and sit down, and they go on with their service. So we had been through that a couple of times, and we were at a another church service on a Sunday, and they had Lynn and I sit kind of sitting over on the side. And uh and We couldn't understand what was going on. They're speaking Chichewa. That was the language there. And uh, we had a translator with us named Samuel Cayuni, And the pastor talks, and then all of a sudden, everybody gets up again, and they're starting to give again. And Linda and I turned to Samuel, and he said, Samuel, what's going on? They've already had the offering. And he he looks at us, he gives us a funny look, and he said, well, the pastor said that they need to take a special offering for you and Linda. And Linda and I are thinking, wow, I mean, Malawi, Africa, is one of the poorest countries in the world, and we were so humbled. And and, he, and Samuel just said to us, "Don't say anything. You know, you could give the money back to the church, but the people want to give. They want to honor you because you've come from America." And we were teaching pastors there, so we watched the second offering. And again, everybody comes up, and and coming down the aisle next to where we were was this woman, and I'd noticed her before, and uh. uh we were familiar enough with their money. Quacha is the, the name of their, it's not dollars, they call them quacha. And this woman had a 20 quacha bill. And she came up and she dropped it in, in this bowl. And I went back later and uh, I looked up the conversion rate. And a qu- 20 quacha is worth 2.3 cents in, in American money. And I realized that the Lord has showed us a living example of that story that he tells in the scriptures about the woman who gives the last two pennies and and this woman who had nothing she's giving to us from america who have everything but she felt that that's what she needed to do and she came up she'd already given once that during that service and she puts her 20 quacha banknote into the bowl we were so humbled by that by her generosity that she felt that she needed to give to us and it it was just an amazing experience When it comes to the wise stewardship of the resources that the Lord has trusted to us, instead of asking, how much can we keep for ourselves? The question really needs to be asked, how much more can we give to the Lord's work? You see the difference between those two questions? How much can I keep? What's the minimum that I can give to the Lord and satisfy God? Instead of saying, how much can I give to the Lord? I mean, what do I really need to live on? How much can I give away to the Lord? Did you know that generosity has a built-in dynamic that guarantees blessings to the one who gives generously? Look at Luke 6.38. This is Jesus speaking. This is what he says. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See the last line? For with the measure that you use, God's generosity will be measured to you. It is impossible to out-generous God, so to speak. God will always respond to our generosity with even more generosity on His part. Not necessarily always in money, but He says right here, with the measure that we give, God, I can, I'm only going to give you this much. And God says, Okay. Here's this much in return. You've determined how much I'm going to bless you by how much you give to me. You know, I I came across an illustration when I was preparing this message, and I thought this would be a a novel way to do an offering. And the suggestion is that when we all stand up and uh, we're getting ready to do the offering and we're doing the prayer, that you reach up to the person who's directly in front of you and you grab their wallet, their purse, their pocketbook, whatever it is that they have, and then you take that. Someone's grabbed yours also, right, out of your back pocket. And now you give to the Lord what you always wanted to but felt you couldn't afford. (laughs) Of course, the front row, you got to go to the back row because the back row, they can't get out of this. So we've been looking mostly at financial resources with these giving guidelines, But the same principles apply to our generous giving of our time, talents, and skills. You know, the interesting thing here is that for most of us, without doing a survey, I would guess that for most of us, we are more comfortable giving time or skills or abilities than we are giving from our paycheck. Would you agree with that? Most of us would probably get more comfortable. Just the mindset that we have. Look at how these principles about generosity are described in the book of Proverbs. This is from Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25. Contrast two men. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. That's a generous man. Another withholds unduly, and he comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will be refreshed himself. Guidelines for honoring the Lord with our wealth. First, give regularly and purposely. Second, give generously. And the third one, the last one I'm going to talk about this morning, give trustingly. We are blessed to live in one of the most affluent, wealthy cultures that has ever existed in human history. You may not feel like that's what your life is like, but it's true. There has never been a people that has been more affluent, had more than we do in America in 2019. Yes, there are the super rich in America, and at the other end of the spectrum, there are those unfortunate folks like the ones that you see camping out on their bridges in downtown Portland. But between those two extremes in America, the vast majority of people, I would say probably almost all of us in this room, live quite comfortably in what is described as the middle class of America. We don't go without housing, or food, or a car, or many other conveniences that many people in the world can hardly even imagine that we just take for granted. And I'm not stating this obvious fact to make us feel guilty, but rather to make the point that tithing is not a big stretch for most of us. There was a... uh, A fellow in a church and his church was uh, struggling to meet their budget they were trying to build a new church and uh, every area of their their church finances was under stress and he went to the leaders of the church and he said "Uh, guys if you let me have total control of the finances for a year and don't ask me any questions uh, I'll help you turn this church around financially and they said well how are you going to do it? He said I'm not going to tell you ask me in a year and I'll tell you how he did it so a year goes by and um, they, they get together again and they look at the church finances. The, the new building's paid for. Uh, the salaries of the, of the staff has been increased. All of the departments of the church are fully funded. Missions has never been better funded than it is and there's a surplus of money. And so they come to this man they said, how did you do that? What did you do that made this huge difference in one year in our church? And the guy says, in the Midwest. And the guy says, well, I own the grain elevator in town. And uh, most of the the families in the church sell their grain through me. And as the grain came in, I just took 10% off. Never told them. And just paid them their grain. They never knew that they were lacking 10%. And everybody in our church now ties. And it never hurt anybody. I can say today that things are not hard for us. But I remember very clearly... When Lynn and I first decided to start tithing, I heard a message uh, much like what you're hearing today from a pulpit many years ago. It was early in our marriage. We had four children, and um, I was working in the woods back then, and uh, got paid once a month. Wasn't very much money, and we just came away from church one day, and we prayed about it, and we both looked at each other, and we said, you know, I, up until then, this is how I gave. Um, On the first of the month, when I'd just gotten paid, I would look at my wallet, and if there was a 5, a 10, and a 20, I would give the 10. Maybe if I was feeling generous, I'd give the 20. At the second week of the month, never more than the the medium bill and maybe the small bill, and I just wouldn't give the rest of the month because I thought, well, we're barely paying the bill. There's four kids here. I can't make any more money than I'm making right now, and so that was it. We came under conviction of the Holy Spirit about that issue of our Basic selfishness, and we began to tithe. It was really hard i, I won 't pull any punches here. It was really hard, and uh, but God did an amazing thing. Uh, something I never realized is that to truly honor the Lord with your wealth will be one of the most faith stretching experiences you will ever encounter because it wasn 't about the money, it really was about. Um, as Stephen Karen shared, could we trust God? Could we trust God that we could actually pay the bills if instead of just waiting till the end of the month if there was $20 left and give that in the collection plate, give 10% off the gross at the beginning of the month and this is all we have to live on. I remember one month, uh, we kept everything in our checkbook back then and one month, uh, we ran through the whole month and all the bills got paid and I, and I thought, how is that possible? We'd had some extra bills, something the washing machine broke or something happened that month. And um, I sat down and I took all the bills and they added up to this amount of money and I, this is my same paycheck I got every month and it was less than that. But we had paid all the bills and we didn't owe any money. And I looked at Lynn and I said, how did that happen? How, how did we pay more bills than we had income? And all I can figure is that God did some version of the loaves and fishes with our checkbook. I mean, really, I can't explain it any other way. But the trusting part of honoring the Lord with your wealth is that stretch. When we determine, God, okay, I've been pretty selfish. I've been thinking about how much I can hold on to instead of how much I can give. I'm going to begin now with the tithe, and it will stretch. Guaranteed it will stretch. And that's when it gets fun. It does, it gets fun. So what if the Lord were to actually call us today to step on a faith in this matter of giving regularly and purposefully. To give generously. And to give beyond anything that we've been used to up until now. That sound a little scary to you? Sounds scary to me. Perhaps especially if you have not been tithing, much of what I've talked about today already sounds pretty scary to you. But if you and I sense that the Lord is nudging us to step closer to that precipice called honoring the Lord with our wealth, then we should be asking God this question. Lord, can we trust you to catch us if we step off that cliff honoring God with our wealth? Well, we know the answer, don't we? I mean, intellectually, we know the answer. God is faithful. He is faithful. We, we just read this, the Scripture promises. To the extent that you give, that's how I'm going to bless you. Give and it will be poured over in your lap and you'll have more blessing than you know what to do with. But there's, a, there's that step, that first step of faith where we have to actually determine to do it and then go out in faith and do it. Scripture is filled with the promises of God's provision when we step out in faithful obedience. Here's one of those promises. It's the last promise Scripture you'll be reading this morning. It's from Philippians 4:15 through 19. This is a, a situation that very closely fits our discussion today. This is Paul speaking. He says, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, no one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except for you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. And now, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Those gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And look at the last sentence. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What's the promise about meeting all their needs? And they gave generously to the work of the Lord. As those saints in ancient Philippi were obedient and faithful to financially support Paul in his missionary journeys, the apostle assures them that they could trust God to make up and even more any lack that they might experience because of their generosity. The glorious riches of Christ have no limit. They are a vast ocean ready to meet our needs as we are obedient to meet the needs of others. Can we trust promises like this from God's word? Will it happen in your life, in my life, if we begin to be obedient on this matter of tithing and even more if that's what God asks us to do? We can trust Him. We do have a safety net ready to catch us if we're willing to step off the cliff called honoring the Lord with our wealth. There was a book written many years ago. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's written by a man named Robert Boyd Munger it's a, it's a simple book, it's a devotional book but it, it, it tells a great story, it uh, kind of springs from the verse in Revelation where Jesus says, behold I stand at the door and knock, if you open the door and let me in I'll come in and have fellowship with you and so uh, the author of the book imagines that our life is uh, one day we've invited Jesus Christ to come into our lives by faith, and so the, the author and he says, one day we hear a knock on the door and we open the door, and there's Jesus Christ standing there. And we say, well, wow, I'm so honored that you're here, Lord. Come on in. Come on into my home. I mean, my heart is your home. I've already invited you in, but come in and check it out. So the author goes through then through the rooms of the house. And he says, well, here's the living room. This is really every morning when I, when I meet with you. This is a chair I sit in and open up God's word, and this is where I, I have my daily reading and and prayer with you lord and and come over and look at this room this is this is the dining room in our house and uh, this is where we share our meals together and where we thank you for all that you provided and and so he's going through the rooms of his house so to speak his heart and he's showing the lord where he is and they're walking down the hallway and there's a closed door and jesus stops and says what's in this room and the way the story goes uh the the person says oh there's nothing in there. That's just a little room that we don't really do anything with. And uh, come on, I want, I want to show you the den. And uh, Jesus said, no, really, I'm, I'm curious. What's in this room here? Well, the, the person said, I really don't really want you to go in that room. It's kind of a mess. L- let's go here. So, but what was in that room, Was the, that was the, the home office. That's where the bills got paid. That's where the files got kept. That's where the, the bank statements were. And the person was willing for Jesus Christ to be the Lord over his devotional time and trusting the Lord to be the Lord who provided food on the table. But he wasn't willing for Jesus Christ to be the Lord of his finances. So he didn't want him to go into that room. And maybe the Lord is speaking to you today. And you may have been generous to a point but not by the standards the scripture talks about. And you haven't really let the Lord be the Lord of your finances. And maybe he's calling you to be that person today and trust him to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're such a generous God. That while we were yet sinners, you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins. And Lord, thank you that you call us into this amazing relationship that we know of as a Christian life. And as the testimonies were shared today, you begin to change our marriages and our families and everything about us. And Lord, this area that we've just talked about, the area of giving, is another area that, strangely enough, in this very affluent culture we live in, is often the last bastion of where we don't want to let things go. We'll let you have every other part of our life. But we hold on to this one. Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would wrestle with each one of us. And if we're married, wrestle with us as a couple. For the principles we've studied from your word are very clear. By the measure we give, you return. If we can't be trusted with the management of something as simple as money, you will not entrust to us something much more important. It's a test. Father, open our hearts. Let us trust you and honor you with the wealth you give us. We pray in your son's name. Amen.